You felt like you had it all, right? You had energy, you had playfulness, you were soaking up the world around you, you were a curious creature. But what is it that you don't have as a kid? Height. You don't have height. Money. You have money. Strength. You have no strength. You don't have freedom. You don't have the choice to do whatever you want. When we're young, we want to be grown up. When we're adults, we yearn for those days of carefree childhood. So what if? You could explore both sides of that coin in one movie. Youth and age. That's right. Find your local Zoltar machine, make your wishes, because we're diving headfirst onto the trampoline that is the 1988 Tom Hanks classic sensation, the movie Big. Ah, classic, what a pull, that's great. That's right, everybody. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast where we revisit the greatest parts of the 1980s. We're your hosts. I'm Ben. And Chris. And this is 80s High. Chris. Indeed it is. How's it going? It's going all right, Mr. Benjamin. How about yourself? Just groovy. Any 80s highlights? Anything happen in your week? Anything crop up? I mean, other than today's topic, I can't say a lot of 80s stuff necessarily came up. How about with you? Uh, I had two. So after our last episode, I was intrigued to give the American Gladiators Super Nintendo game a whirl. Oh, that's right. You showed me a picture. Yeah. And I would say I played it for less than 60 seconds (laughs) Um, because the directions were unclear. I just have no idea what buttons do what without looking up what they are. Because you remember back in the day when you got a Super Nintendo game, there was like an instruction manual. Right. That told you how the games worked and what buttons did what, but with nothing... I literally, it opened on Assault, and I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to be doing. Was the game interesting at all, or was it also bad? 60 seconds is not a good run on a game. No, not at all. I, well, I just got so frustrated because it's like, I made it through Assault. Like, I made it to the end without getting shot, and then I okay. couldn't leave the map. So I was kind of frustrated. Oh, also, I figure out how to do two-player, which is kind of a bummer. Please tell me you played as Malibu, or against Malibu, I should say. Uh, no, unfortunately, this game came out in like 91 or 2. Oh. So what I feel is the big hair replacement for Malibu had shown up Thunder. Okay. Who was the next big blonde-haired guy to yeah, come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other one we experienced together last night, it, it was sort of serendipitous. We were playing Jackbox on Zoom to celebrate a friend's birthday, and the topic, oh, yes. you got you got the prompt to try and get us to guess a movie without saying anything specific about the movie, and what movie did you get? It was big. <laughs> yes! <laughs> it's like it knew! Again, we always keep talking about these dovetailing topics and parallels and things that come back. There's more in this episode, by the way. But yeah, last night, we're friend's birthday party, we're playing Jackbox, and sure enough, the topic of big came up in this whole like guessing game. It was awesome. The universe knew. It was like, let's just wet the palates of everyone here tonight. Indeed. It's coming up. Maybe I skipped breakfast this morning. I'm already thinking about what we're going to have for lunch today, and I hope we get to find out in the What is on future. that tasty, tasty menu? <laughs> Attention 80s high. 
I'm Gerald, here to share today's homeroom announcements. We're going from Polaroids to the World Wide Web. Follow the podcast on Instagram to catch the latest show topics and a never-ending story of 80s nostalgia. That's 80s High Podcast on Instagram. Today's lunch menu will be chicken sandwiches and crinkle-cut fries with a side of garden salad and Capri Sun. The vegetarian option will be peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with carrot and celery sticks. Don't miss sign-ups to join the class of 80s High today after school. Get advance notice of show topics, answer fun survey questions, and share your memories with a chance to have them included in a future episode. You can even be the next classmate to read these announcements. Email 80shighpodcast at gmail to join. That's 80s. After school today, the Fightin' Mogwai's baseball team will be facing down our crosstown rivals, the Valorians of Central High, who, if you remember from last year, beat us by one run. Get your bandanas on because it's time for a rematch. The speech and debate team has been preparing all semester for all county invitationals. Mr. Atreyu's varsity debate team is talking up a storm and getting ready to show up the competition this weekend at Falcor Community College. If you are still interested in being an alternate on the debate team, join us at Classroom 5B. In addition, the Drama Club will be holding auditions for the Spring Musical. There are still parts to play and the AV Club will also be there to learn about stage lighting. We'll be meeting at the auditorium right at 4.15. Thank you, and have a most triumphant day. Go Mogwais! Delicious announcements, uh, a lunch I can't wait to sink my teeth into. <laughs> but most importantly, I want to sink my teeth into the big, big topic of the movie, Big. Do we need any more setup, or do we just run to first period? Oh, no, let's get to first period for sure, because there's a... I feel like I'm going to be slowed down because my feet feel a little small in my shoes already. So I, okay. should, I should speed up. Dear Zoltar, I wish I was in first period. Okay, we're here to talk about the movie Big. Right, so Christopher George Latour Wallace was born May 21st, 1972. He's better known as Notorious B.I.G. or Biggie Smalls. Yeah. Or simply Biggie. And, uh, you know, he's just a very well-renowned songwriter and rapper. And his death to this day scratches some heads. What was going on? What was going on? Uh, and that was 80s high, right? That's what we were going to cover? Absolutely. This week. <laughs> I was going to see how long you would carry this on. I'm looking at Ben right now, and he's got this little smile on his face. Like, he's so pleased with himself. And I'm like, I'm going to let you keep talking. Let's do a whole episode. Stages. There are hundreds of pages. About I mean, there's, there's books about <laughs> Biggie Smalls. There's a lot to go on here. Just turned it into a true crime podcast. But... Oh, my God. That would be amazing. <laughs> Who killed Biggie Smalls? So besides me doing the wrong homework, what are we really getting into? So what we're really talking about is the 1988 classic comedy drama starring Mr. Tom Hanks and lots of other lovely people we'll get to, where young boy, teenager, wishes to be big and then is aged to adulthood overnight. Mm -hmm. Antics ensue. And he learns that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Mm-hmm. Important life lesson. Indeed. Brought to you by T. Hanks. So this is written by Gary Ross and Ann Spielberg. And I feel like we don't talk about writers enough. Writers are really unsung heroes in the movie industry. Um, they get a lot more cred in TV. But I want to throw that out for the writers. And directed by Penny Marshall, very famous director. And, of course, uh, of Laverne and Shirley uh, acting days in the 70s. And Spielberg, relation to Steven? That's a great question. I did not look that up. I haven't heard many Spielberg, so I don't really know. Oh, yes, relation 
sister. Oh, I did not realize he had. I didn't know he had siblings. Well, I, didn't, I didn't know he had a sister or yeah, or any siblings, nor did I know that uh, she was a, well, I don't, I'm assuming she's a, a famous writer, but she certainly has one great credit to her name. For sure. Born in the city of brotherly love on Christmas Day in 1949. Christmas birthdays. That's rough. My heart goes out to you, Anne. <laughs> Um, so oh, this movie, awesome. you know, a few other highlights. Commercial success, has accolades with Oscar and Golden Globe nominations. Hanks actually nabbed a Golden Globe for Best Actor. There you go, buddy. Penny Marshall became the first female director ever to direct a movie that grossed over $100 million at the box office. Whoa, which is make a it rain. big deal. There's also, still to this day, I think as we all know, not a lot of female directors. Uh, this is also, along with three other movies, is notable for containing the F word in a film rated PG. In the era of PG-13, because we have talked about, that didn't come around till about three years prior to this. I was going to ask you that later. Do you have the list of the other ones? I do. I know. It's ah, yeah. I, I, okay. Like any good researcher, I did my look around. So let's go through them. Which ones are they, Ben? In increasing order of ones that I love. So we'll oh, say this is interesting. Caddyshack 2. I knew that was your least favorite. And then, oh, these are like a really, oh, these are these really close are tough. Toss-up. These are tough. Oof. I'll go number two. This is going to be controversial. Beetlejuice. Okay. I thought it was going to be the reverse. But yeah, Beetlejuice, also an 88 movie. But my God, do I love Mel Brooks. So Spaceballs I mean, is yeah. number one. If Beetlejuice has to come in second... Spaceballs is a great movie to come in second to, let's be clear. So, And let's put a bookmark in our head because we won't swear on the podcast. But when we get to talking about the movie, let's. I wrote down the line of where it gets by. I was surprised when it came up because I did not remember an F-bomb in this movie. I was like, It's oh. flagrant. They're not sneaking in the background. It is the no. line on camera. These days, that would not be a PG movie. I think you get one F-bomb in a PG-13 movie. I yeah. think it's the kind yeah. of dealio now. At any rate, um, this is also a big era, not only of (laughs) PG movies with F-bombs, but also there are tons and tons of like age swap, body swap, and body switch type movies Mm -hmm. out there. Like Father Like Son, 18 Again, Vice Versa, which has a cross-reference we're going to get to, 14 Going on 30, and an Italian movie called De Grande. I don't have tons of other stuff for history. Is there anything else that you had for this period that you felt was noteworthy? Can I just say my dog ate my homework? (laughs) I think I left my history textbook in my locker. I literally am blank on this chapter for this episode. I mean, there's enough to talk about in chemistry class. Let's not delay it. Grab another quarter, drop it into the Zoltar machine, smack on it until it starts and make our wish. I wish I was in chemistry class. Abracadabra. I can't believe it. Uh, I'm in chemistry class. I really hope that Zoltar's not the devil because we're making a lot of devilish deals <laughs> today. It's a little terrifying. I mean, we're going to get into it, but that is a question of what is Zoltar and where does it come from? That is a wonderful question. We're going to have to get to Zoltar for sure. What I want to talk about is the start of this movie. The whole conceit, as we mentioned, is Josh is not happy being a 13-year-old. I mean, who is, right? Yeah. Do you know many cheery 13-year-olds? I mean, to be completely honest, I don't think I know any teenagers. But I know the line of teen angst. That's a thing. I mean, you have moments of happiness, but it's it's not the most pleasant time in anyone's life. It's a difficult formative period, for sure. Our young protagonist runs into a series of issues where he decides, you know what, being 13 is not all it's cracked up to be. 
So this is what happens in the first 11 minutes of the movie. Josh and his friend Billy, two 13-year-old kids. They're having a good time. They're playing ball at the park. They have a song that they sing that's like their own personal kind of private song. glad you brought up the song. Okay. How far can you get in the song? This is a song where I don't actually know all the real words. Right. So I could like fake my way through it, but I can't say I ever learned the real words. So here's the problem. Every time I try and sing it, here's what happens. I go, shimmy, shimmy, cocoa pop, shimmy, shimmy, wow. Light it up and take a puff, pass it to me. Now we're going downtown, baby. Rope Street in a Range Rover, boom, boom, baby. I, I, I can only remember the sample. Many years later, I can't, I can never remember the actual song they sing together. I'm going to probably say something really dumb for this show. I don't know where that's from. I also can't remember the artist who did it. It's like an RB and a rap song in the late 90s. Oh, mid to late okay. 90s. That sample, the Coca Pops, which is what I was trying to listen to when we started this. It looks like this originates from 1959. Anthony and the Imperials did mm. Shimmy Shimmy Coco Bop. And I think that's based on the time period, is what this is riffing off of. Okay. Anyway, I love that song. That's very iconic to me in this song, in the movie. And it serves, of course, as that code language so that. When Josh does transform into an adult, Billy knows it's actually him because it's like that serves as their bonding thing and only Josh would know that. So that's how he can be like, oh, okay. So they're singing their song. They're riding their bikes and then they live next door to each other. So at night they're talking to each other on these walkie talkies. There's a few time periods in my childhood where I had walkie talkies, but it was later and I always wanted them. I thought it was the coolest thing. Did you ever have like the bedroom buddy, like you were calling a friend at night on a walkie talkie? That happens so much in movies in the 80s of kids talking to each other at night on walkie talkies. I never lived close enough to anybody to do that. Okay. I moved a lot as a kid. I think I've sort of mentioned that on the show. So I never lived anywhere long enough, but I, most of the houses, like I had friends nearby, but never close enough to do that. Yeah, I don't think we ever used the walkie-talkies, like, in the in bedrooms like that, between room and room. Right. Like, certainly, like, when playing in the woods or, like, running around the neighborhood on bikes, we were doing the walkie-talkie thing. I remember one time we did a road trip somewhere, and we had two cars, and we had some walkie-talkies, because back then you didn't have cell phones or other ways of communicating with each other. So we had these walkie-talkies, and basically, like, one car would have to signal to the other car, like, turn on your walkie, and then we'd be like... <laughs> Hey, we're getting hungry back here. Do you want to pull off at the next stop? You know, that kind of a thing. So efficient. It's so good. It's great. Yeah. I like it. All right. I mean, now we don't have to worry about that. We can just text. But, you know, back then, that was pretty uh, pretty slick. Yeah. So the next day, you're introduced to Josh's crush, who he's all about. And I think after that, we kind of jump to, basically, he goes to the fair and he sees this girl. What's her name? Uh, Cynthia? That sounds about right. So I want to point out the fair yes. is filmed at Playland Amusement Park, operating out of Rye, New York, has been operating there since 1928. So real, real setting, not necessarily built for the movie. I mean, cer- certainly lots of props and installations for the movie, but that park is there. I thought, I thought that was kind of cool. I always kind of like it when they when they film in a authentic place. I do feel like you can kind of tell when it's filmed in a stage setting. There is um, an abandoned amusement park. I want to say it's in Louisiana, somewhere in the southeast. And there was an extra casting call that went out about six years ago to be in Jurassic World. How fast do you think I got an application in to be an extra in Jurassic World? Uh, Short of you finding a DeLorean and going back in time to do it sooner, I would say immediately. Yeah, immediately. And unfortunately, I didn't get a call back. And then for Jurassic World Dominion, they were filming up in B.C., which is not that far away. So I applied to that, too. I am going to be in a Jurassic Park movie someday. 
Someday, I'm going to get eaten in the background. I swear to God. So I did a quick double check. Her name is indeed Cynthia. Nice. And, you know, she's a little bit older than him, effectively out of his league. Anyway, they go to the fair later, and he's with his parents. This is the one and only time we see his father, by the way. Dad is never seen before or after. That's such a great point. That, like, we got to the end of the movie, and I was like, didn't he have a dad? Yeah. Do you? Is there any story behind that? What happens to his dad? No idea. Even when he comes home several times in the middle of the movie, there's no dad. No dad. And he's never mentioned again, like, my husband's worried sick. It's all about the mom. Does the movie really only show his one wish, but he actually had two wishes and one was to get rid of his dad? And nobody remembers him. And nobody remembers That's a horror movie indeed. Exactly. Like the movie like posits that it's kind of fun. Like, oh, he wants to be an adult. But actually, Josh really wished for a future without his father. Ben, this is the devil's deal. So Zoltar, Mm. I'm sorry, red eyes, creepy looking, a machine that operates without being plugged in. You tell me. That's the devil's deal. Not he steals the dad, but then wipes everyone's memory so they don't even remember. Oh my god, they've been men in blacked. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. That, yeah, so terrifying. that thing's great. So they get to the fair. Seems like a happy family. Yeah. I mean, they're all, they're great, right? Like, And even like when the mom comes in, when the kids are talking on the walkies after night, she's not, put that away. She's just like, time for bed, guys. Uh, yeah, you know, right? she's like, she's a cool lady. And this woman, much like in Gremlins, this mom gets a raw deal. Even worse so, I would say. We'll get to that, of course. <laughs> I have no Poor, poor woman. For sure. Uh, so yeah, so they're at the fair and what happens? He wants to ride a ride, right, Ben? Yeah, so <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up. So his crush is in line for this awesome roller coaster. And the line for it is two by two. So just to be dramatic, he walks up right up the middle of this line, shoving people. Instead of just walking up to where she is in line, he shoves through like 40 people. It's almost like a zipper. Like the zipper just kind of yes! goes up the middle and the people part. Yeah, it's so ridiculous. I and love so it. And so then he like talking a good game. She's like, have you been on this board? And he's like, oh, yeah, of course. And then, of course, when he gets up there, the little measuring sign, you know, you must be this tall. He's not tall enough. So that's kind of a oops. Well, but remember, before that, he gets another gut punch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this dude walks up and Cynthia, does she say he's her boyfriend? Oh, yeah. And she's like, he drives. Backhand smack to his ego. Yeah, this poor kid. Is that the final straw? Is that the trigger for him to go do the deed? 100%. Okay, that's what I thought. I think that's really the only trigger, honestly. Like, there's not much else in this that shows him sort of fumbling through early teens, you know. So all the mayhem of the next two hours is caused because his crush was dating an older guy. And so that's what causes all of this insanity. Listen, this is his crush. She's just been like, I have a boyfriend. Boom. He drives. Boom. Yeah. Lots and then of this whole lie he's constructed about how he's ridden this ride and it's scary and he thinks it's the best thing. He gets up there and he's like, you're too short. Get it. <laughs> you know, the guy just like, and she's like, sorry. But of course she gets on with her bow. This hit me close of the being too short to ride, which you being the height that you are, I'm sure you've never experienced that before. That's not true. I was not tall until about ninth grade. Okay. I had a growth spurt. So I was I was always usually like a regular average height, but never anything yeah. above that. So first of all, watching this movie with my partner, she pointed out in the sheet and she was like, oh yeah, remember when girls were all taller than boys? And there was like this period, right? Because like girls hit their, yeah. oftentimes hit their growth spurt before boys do. Yeah, like a year or two typically. Right. So there's like this little period at elementary into early high school where all the girls are crazy tall and all the boys are short. And when you see the movie, it's like, it's kind of like that in this period. I remember that for sure. That was, that's my whole dating life of high school was and like. And as John Mulaney says, 
you still have a voice like a little flute. (laughs) (laughs) Accurate. But what this really reminded me of is my parents took my brother and I to Disney World when I was five, making him 17, which meant an entire long weekend of me watching my brother ride rides because mm. I was too short for everything besides like, it's a small world. <laughs> Fittingly enough. <laughs> yeah, right? So freaking accurate. When he's like, looks up at the, you know, must be this tall. I felt a little, I felt seen, a little triggered, but I felt seen, which was good. <laughs> I appreciated it. I should have uh, preloaded this entire experience with a trigger warning for yeah. all my shorties out there. I'm sure Small World is in the public domain if you want to play that in the background during this, this memory. <laughs> it's got to be by now. Oh, my God. Nightmare oh, film. man. So I want to get through this little bit real quick, and we can we can come back to Zoltar. Okay, because okay, I okay, know okay. we're going to okay. have a lot to say about Zoltar. A lot about Zoltar. So Josh has his terrible experience. He's deflated. He's walking away. He's already told his parents, like, shove off. I'm going to ride this thing by myself. I just want to do it. That all blows up in his face. He's moping around. He goes to the edge of the fair. He sees, kind of off on its own, Zoltar speaks this machine. Goes up to it. He can make a wish. He wishes to be big. And they go home. He goes to sleep. There's a big old windstorm. Things are getting knocked over. He wakes up. At 11 minutes, he's Tom Hanks. That's how quickly this movie gets through the business. Yeah, I forgot how quickly this movie moved, for sure. It is really fast. And then it's off to the races with the sort of fish out of water experience. There's a lot of places we can talk about Zoltar, but I feel like you want to talk about Zoltar right honking now. Well, yeah, this is the big scene. He makes his wish on the Zoltar machine. See, is Zoltar a scene or a character? See, this is why I want to get into it, because I have these (laughs) questions too. This is a perfect time. I'm giving you a little bit of grief because you give me a thousand percent grief in all these episodes. So please, let's talk about this machine. So where I struggled for a while, and the movie eventually, I think, answers it, but the movie takes like 40 minutes to finally answer it. Is the machine real or not? Does it exist? Mm. And did a carnival worker set it out? So these are two different things. Did a carnival worker set it out with this story thing, or did it just appear? Appear. Do you have a stance on this? Yes. I mean, there's clearly a supernatural element to this thing, but where does it come in? Was it placed there by the carnival worker and something possesses it? Or, right, did it just kind of show up as this creature on its own accord somehow and manifest itself? I mean, given that the New York State Consumer Affairs Division has a document of it, I'm going to assume it's a real thing that somehow had magical properties. Right. So that's where the movie like tries to answer it. And this blew my mind too, because this is before Google. Okay. So if you were trying to find a traveling carnival today, you would just be like, boop, boop, boop. When's the Washington State Carnival and where's it going to be? But in the movie, Josh and Billy go to the Consumer Hall of Records and they, they just go to like the front reception and be like, hey, I need a list of every amusement park and traveling fair. And they're like, oh, yeah. and that's how you got records. Now she said in the movie, it takes what, like a month? Six weeks. Six weeks to get that. But it was just such a good like transportational different time of like, this is how you got knowledge just 30 years ago before Google. You had to go crazy. to a building, pay to make a request. Like, well, you make the request and you had to pay to have it processed and you waited for six weeks. Right. Okay. So it exists on this plane, but it only functions if unplugged. Well, it only functions in this particular way. Right. I don't know if it functions any other way. It does not seem to. Again, you would think Better Business Bureau would have some kind of like, these are lemon <laughs> machines, send them back to the manufacturer. 
I would love None of your machines work. If they got the report back, they're like, yeah, the Zoltar keeps like screwing up lives every time. Here's all the, like, this guy turned into a crocodile. This one lost his legs. We can't find this person. Like, it'd be a great record. I liken this a little bit to Groundhog Day. There's a, a, I mean, it's not wish fulfillment there, but it is a life-changing experience that only happens to one person. And I have to wonder, does Zoltar work normally for everyone else? Did this wish mean so much that it transcends some plane of existence? So that's Ah. one of my three questions, is no one else is using this machine. No one else even looks at it, which was like my, does this exist or not? Or is Joss just seeing that? Or is it just appear to like, who needs to make a wish? That's the only people who can see it. Mm. So yeah, and every time we see it, no one else is walking away from having made a wish. No one's queuing up to make a wish. No one looks at Josh while he's doing it. Do you find it odd that no one else is acknowledging the presence of this thing? No, because at a carnival, there's so much to see and do. And he's at the edge of the carnival. He's not in the thick of it. People are playing the interactive games. They're off riding the rides. I mean, a couple kids are playing what appear to be like video game type stuff. But for the most part, this is not something that is a main attraction for a traveling carnival. You're going to want to ride the rides. You're going to want to do the games, you know, knocking over the bottles or Mm. the ring toss where you get a prize. This is just like a an additional thing you can do. And like video games are coming out, arcade games are coming out, they're at the carnival. So this is like an old like analog game and maybe the kids don't care about it. I mean, kids aren't going to be as interested in this for sure. You already uncovered without me having to ask one of my three questions about Zoltar. So I have two left. All right. Christopher. Yes, Benjamin. Where do you stand on fortune telling? In the world of palm reading, astrology, fortune cookies, breaking the turkey wishbone at Thanksgiving, what do you think about this kind of stuff? I don't think it's a real thing. Okay. I don't believe any of it's real. I believe some people have the ability to intuit a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a, a an ability or a skill in much the same way you could have an ability or skill for lots of other things. There are people who can walk up to a piano and just play it. Yeah, That's a crazy ability most people don't have, but someone can do There are people out there who we know can do it. Mm, interesting. And so I think this, call it an intuition or something like that, I think exists, but I don't think it exists in the magical way we suggest mm. it does. Have you ever had your fortune read? No, because I've never really put any stock in it. Okay. So I've, I mean, I've never even gone and done it for like fun. I'm not opposed to it, but like if a group of friends are like, hey, let's go do it, I would be like, eh, okay, but it's never come up. Okay. Okay. How about you? I dated someone once whose family was super into this sort of like the the world beyond. Mm. And they had a family friend and they insisted, this was like part of like getting with the family, that they wanted my basically past lives to be read. And so they, they drove me to this woman's house and dropped me off. And they're like, we're going to come get you in a little bit. You had a spiritual background check is basically what you had. Yes! Yeah, this is like pre-Facebook. So this is how they got it. So they left me alone with this woman in her home in the city that I was not from for like two hours. She made tea. Whatever you're picturing this woman's kitchen to be like is exactly right. So like, homie, welcome, beads hanging. And yeah, she like read my palm, looked into my eyes and talked to me about all the past lives I had had before. It was pretty wild. It was pretty, it was pretty intense. It was interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I'm like you. I actually very exactly parallel where like I feel like people are sensitive and can intuit, but not like, yeah. It's not like an an extrasensory perception kind of a thing. Okay, last question. More of just a discussion point. All right. Can you remember the exact words he uses when he makes his wish? What does he wish for? I want to say he says, I wish to be big. Yeah, I wish to be big. Okay. 
If there's anything movies, TV, and books have taught us about genies is you have to be specific. <laughs> like he could have gotten morbidly obese. He could have become a giant. Or maybe he's just like really famous. Or he becomes notorious B.I.G. <laughs> but somehow Zoltar interprets like, ah, you want to be an adult is what you mean. And the same person. You want to be just the adult version of you. Well, we just talked about the intuition spirit. And I feel like Zoltar possesses that. Like he has that sort of intuition to be able to be like, you know, I, I wanted more specificity, but I got you. I know what you want. I know what you need. No, if this was Aladdin, Tom Hanks wakes up 900 pounds the next yeah. day. And it's like, meet the clumps. Well, there's this like... This story of somebody who wished for eternal life, but they didn't wish for eternal youth. And so they just kept getting older yeah. and older and more decrepit, but never died. And that's, that is a haunted Whoa. idea if there ever was one. It's very like a portrait of Dorian Grayish, where like, uh, yes, Tom Hanks has to go kill people to stay young, kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> like, that would be like an episode of Twilight Zone or uh, something like that for sure. Yeah. This movie's ripe for so many good spin offs. I like reinterpretations. Mrs. Doubtfire. They've someone's cut a trailer as a horror film, and it works. I've seen it. it works. So good. Do yourself a favor, listeners, and go watch that. It is a creepy little treat. We've got a connection to Hollywood. I'm going to call Darren McBee, aka Malibu, and we're going to pitch him <laughs> these ideas. And let's get this going. Let's get it. Let's get it filming. I love it. This is so good. All right. Is there more to say about Zoltar? No, at thank this you for entertaining me for Zoltar for now. I am sure we were going to come back to Zoltar, yeah, but totally. I know it, but we, yeah, those were important things to get out. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You know, the origin stories as they go and set up, some movies are terrible at it. They can languish for a half hour. What I really appreciate about this movie, boom, we're right to the business. Yeah, we're in it. It's just enough background. You didn't need a lot more. And that's the other thing. It's not a high concept, right? Every teenager wants to be older, have more responsibility, have fewer adults telling them what to do. They want their own money. They want their own schedule. They want all those things. So it's like, you don't have to really oversell this concept. I kind of want to ask you, because you brought up this movie. Why is this movie so enduring? Why is this movie so loved? Why does the story connect with so many people? I mean, first and foremost, Tom Hanks is so great at this. Can you imagine any other actor in this role? I have notes on who else was considered. Oh, I so wished you didn't look at that because oh, I wanted no. to ask you. Okay, so you have already looked. Tell me who from that list you think could have done it. You know, this is always so impossible in hindsight with like iconic roles where you're like, well, this movie is beloved because this person played this character. Sure. When I looked, you know, at the various people who were considered and two more seriously, and maybe we'll get into them. Oh, yeah. Not at all. Not for a passing moment. Can I be like, oh, that would have been fun to see what they do with this role? Michael Keaton? Do you think Michael Keaton? Speaking of Beetlejuice. Um, and maybe this is terrible, but I feel like Keaton may have been too old at the time already to like pull it off in a charming yeah. way. Because Josh is supposed to be like maybe 30. Because yeah. Billy teases him. He's like, you know, you could be older than 30. And then they fight on the street, which is kind of right. fun. Right, right, right. John Goodman. Yeah, no. He has a childlike kind of quality to him. I do love what Goodman did, like, post-Roseanne. Yeah. He's just incredible. But Hanks has just this, like, perfect, like, relatability and vulnerability and innocence to him. Yeah. I have one more for you here. And this is our tieback, Judge Reinald. <laughs> you know, maybe. Maybe, Judge. Because, you know, Judge later in this same decade, I believe, went on to do another 80s, it's a body swap movie. He was in Vice Versa with Fred Savage. Right. Uh, which I haven't seen. Have you seen? 
I think I saw it way back when it came out. It's been a while. I'm curious because I could see the two of them making that work. I, if I remember correctly, like it's a, it's good for what it is, but I mean, it doesn't have that endurance of big, which again, coming back to to your question. But first and foremost, there were some names on this list that made my jaw drop. Oh, yeah. What were some of those names, Ben? Well, the number what I found was the number one person behind Hanks was Robert De Niro. So Hanks was the original pick. Yeah. And then he had a conflict and couldn't do it. Right. So then it went to Robert De Niro. De Niro. I cannot picture this. Mr. Goodfella comes into the toy company and kills everybody and, and buries them with the fishes. I cannot imagine how this works. So De Niro asks for $6 million, which looking yeah. at the whole budget of this movie, just way too high at the time. Yeah. And thank God, Tom Hanks becomes available again. But oddly enough... De Niro's potential attachment to the script is actually what gets interest in the movie because Penny Marshall was not getting any movement on this movie. Right. De Niro's name is attached. Now people are interested. But ultimately, Tom, he asks too much money. Tom Hanks becomes available and does the movie for a third of the cost. Way to go, Hanks. Always seeing the opportunity. Okay. Other names on the list here. Um... Mr. Grease Lightning himself, John Travolta. Oh my God. Is strongly considered for it. The studio didn't want the poor guy. Right. The director really wanted him. <laughs> and why did I have the quote here? Do you know what this what the studio said? Why not? It's pretty scathing, but I can't remember the exact words. The studio said at the time in responding to the director, Travolta is box office poison. That was the word. I, I was thinking Ouch. the word toxic was in my head, but poison. Equally nasty. He hadn't done Battlefield Earth yet. So what was the problem? What was going on? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, that's a showstopper if you've ever seen that movie. Yeah. A few other names that came up that blew my freaking mind. Harrison Ford. Again, what's with all these grouchy guys? Like, Harrison Harrison Ford was a grouchy old man back then. Yeah, he would not have been. Nope. Robin Williams would have been too manic. Bless his heart. I couldn't have said it any differently or better. Bill Murray just has too much cynicism. He works in Groundhog Day. He doesn't work in this movie. He has an immaturity, but not a childlike quality, I think. He's got some that pull off. Like, uh, there's the summer camp movie Meatballs, and he does mm. act alongside a lot of kids. And he does- Fair, fair. Oh, right, but there, you're right. There's this sort of cynicism and sarcasm into it. And again, which is what makes Hanks' performance so great, is he's just so authentic and vulnerable and like relatable in this, that it's great. Okay, last crazy name that came up. And there were a few more, but this one, I was like, what on earth? He did at least get an audition, apparently. Gary Busey. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What the heck? I would 100% watch a cut of this movie with Gary Busey. Hey, everybody, I'm Josh. I'm your old friend, Josh. (laughs) I don't get it. Billy. It's me, Billy. (laughs) I don't get it. It's a building. Again, oh, Gary Busey man. works in Stephen King's Silver Bullet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, with yeah. Corey Haim, doesn't work in this movie. Not at all in this. So clearly, the reason this movie is a big success, by and large, I think, is the charm of Mr. Tom Hanks, no doubt. And then do you know why we love Tom Hanks in this role so much? Because he crushes so much. Do you know one of the biggest things that happened that made him be so good at this role? Mm, I don't know. Here's what I read is they filmed every adult scene with David Moscow, the kid, young Josh. Ah. And then they were like, just be you. Just don't try and act it. Just do what you, David Moscow, child. Like all the adult scenes? All the adult scenes. Wow. Which raises some questions later on when when Hank starts dating. But 
um, they film all the adult scenes, and then Hanks would watch it to really see like everything down to the little mannerisms to see that sort of like um, how he's not sure of himself and how he looks right. and how he like his little ticks and stuff. And then he would hang out with David also just to like get the feel of a teenager, like what how do teenagers behave? Right. That really helped him crush like his acting in this. This was so good. No, that's really good business because I think the movies where you have good chemistry, it's because the, particularly with younger people, is because they are able to hang out together. I know that was like a big thing in Stand By Me where like all those four actors got to hang out a lot together yeah. and just goof off. And it it helped sell that these were great friends who knew each other really well. So I, oh. that's great. I mean, even though these two don't have a scene together, it's crucial that you feel like this is older Josh and it's not a completely separate person that, you know, they've just stitched together for movie reasons. I cannot wait to do Stand By Me on this show. I love, I love that oh my God. movie so much. Is, is that next week's topic? Can we just, uh, let's can, just we, can we just jump ahead? Uh, let's just jump ahead. <laughs> oh my God. Number two, this is again an age old tale. Now there's a lot of these types of stories and we can talk about why this one in particular works, but the whole idea of somebody wishing for something because they think the grass is greener on the other side. They uh. think they'll have a better deal or a better life if they have this thing that's different. And like any good movie, they learn, mm, this is not really true. Yeah, you're going to gain some things, but you're definitely going to lose some stuff. And ultimately, who wants to race out of childhood or you know miss some of those formative years of your life? And so the construct of it is just very well uh, done here. Yeah. There's so many classic scenes, which we'll get to. Yeah. And a lot of charm. I think... One other thing, I mean, he works at a toy company, for crying out loud. What kid did not want to work at a freaking toy company? No, it's incredible. I mean, it is really like the dream. And that apartment, we're going to talk about that apartment, of course. Like, Oh, yeah. And I, again, like good acting all around. The kid who plays the friend Billy is really good. Uh, Elizabeth Perkins, who plays Susan. As we've mentioned in a previous episode, John Hurd plays Paul Davenport. Yeah. Kevin McAllister's dad at Home Alone, the jerky boyfriend. And just all that, Robert Loggia, of course, is great as Mr. McMillan. And a classic comedian from the 80s has a very small bit part, but John John Lovitz Lovitz is in this. That's right, John Lovitz. It's like this sneaky, slimy cubicle mate who tries to teach him how to work the system at the toy company. Yeah, he's like, pace yourself, don't work so quick. Yeah, exactly. And then the mom is great, played by Mercedes Rule. Great name. And David Moscow, who plays young Josh. I think, it, again, they're all, it's a solid cast. It's well done. Yeah, I and wouldn't have I think changed anything in it. It's just a good script is ultimately, I think, the other, the last piece of it too. And again, credit to the writers. It's just a really well done script. Oh, yeah. Before we got on this great tangent, we last left off, Josh had just made his wish. Yeah. Do you want to pick it back up near there? I think the other formative scene that comes next, of course, is the reveal to himself and... Well, eventually to his mother. Yeah. First he has to skirt around mom that he is now an adult. Right. What do you want to talk about there, Ben? So, yeah, right. He comes down. He's in his tidy whities that are branded on some toy thing. And before rewatching this movie last week, you you had mentioned of like how horrifying Big is. And I had no recollection at all of the scary stuff, which is very strange for me as someone who like in Unsolved Mysteries, all I could remember were the bad things. <laughs> I didn't know there were good stories in Unsolved Mysteries. So I had no recollection that there were scary parts in Big, but like as an adult, now that we know that she's a single mom because of the devil's wish and that his dad has evaporated, (laughs) for this full grown man to come down 
wearing her son's, as an adult, wearing her son's tidy whities demanding that he's her son and chasing around the house is legitimately, for her, terrifying. Well, and she knows he's wearing that underwear because he pulls his pants down to show her the underwear. Look, it's me. So in this woman's mind, an adult man has kidnapped her son and put on his underwear. Right, right. But then what I love there is she pulls a knife on him in the kitchen. Oh, she sure does. And I'm like, here we go. Another 80s mom pulling a kitchen knife on a monster. I love that all these moms are going Sigourney Weaver and they're just like chasing them out of the house. No fear. She's awesome. So that's, I mean, that's all I really have about the reveal and the help and the home. In between that scene, Josh does run back to the fair because he's like, hey, what the heck happened? Yeah. And he realizes he's grown into an adult, runs out the front door in his dad's clothes because his don't fit anymore, goes to the fair. Did this seem strange to you, Ben? That fair is gone. Overnight, that fair disappeared. Is that common for those types of things? Do they pack up everything overnight? There were giant roller coasters that we're safe enough to ride, we hope, that are gone. As someone who does actually have a professional connection to this world, no, it takes a long time to pack up a state fair or traveling carnival. And definitely, like, you don't do it overnight. You don't do it at night because you can't see what you're doing. Right. Or you have to pay for the power for the lights to pack it up overnight. So no. And the people have probably been working all day. So the, I mean, maybe they got some like union guys coming in to do the dismantling. (laughs) I don't know. But it just seems like if you've been traveling and doing all this, my guess is at night, you're going to want to go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey, go get sketchy Larry to go get the Zoltar (laughs) machine that he takes care of all the time. So the the next section, let's just talk by sections. The next section I call fish out of water. This is where, again, we had the business with the mom. He has to escape. He has nowhere to go. So he and Billy devise that he's going to stay in New York City. And they're going to try to find, that's when they go to the consumer affairs, try to find the Zoltar machine, learn it's going to be a six-week wait. And he has to get a job. He sees the ad for the toy company. He lands the job as a data processor because... He has some video game skills and can kind of talk about computer stuff, right? Right, right. Is there anything in this sort of fitting in period? Well, nothing about the office, but I've got stuff about his apartment. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about. So, you know, one of the questions we asked our class of 80s high was, what parts of this movie did you find scary? And one person did reply, this apartment scene. And I agree. This is something that I remember watching as a kid. This creeped me out. So he's in New York City. He's not in a great part of the city. It's... What, what did he pay for that room? Like $17 or something? $17.50 for the room. But this reminds me, and we'll probably do this as we do lots of movies over the course of this podcast. New York City was really freaking rough in the 80s. Like it, That's true. It was like gangs and drugs and prostitution and violence. I feel like 80s in cinema was about how bad the gangs and violence were in New York. And then New York in the 90s was like, how many different ways can we blow New York up with a natural disaster? Always. Um, And now it's like you have little meat cutes about, you know, millennial (laughs) professionals uh, around. But yeah, anyway, so like the whole city is really rough in the 80s. If you've seen the movie, you know, it's a really sketchy apartment. You know, he has to say goodbye to Billy. Billy leaves. He's on his own, really for the first time, truly on his own. And there's a gunshot outside and people screaming. Some The scary part I always remember is the guy who answers is a payphone outside of his room. The guy who answers that payphone is screaming and he just starts going, no, 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 no. And he's talking in a different language, I think, for the most part. Yeah, right. And I couldn't quite tell what the language was, but the no is very pronounced. And he like, Josh has to push the dresser in front of it. I remember, and he just gets on the bed and like- 
covers himself and is crying. That's a really scary scene as a kid. So I had so much empathy to this scene, actually, because it honestly reminded me of very much my own experience. Where after, Was it your first day in college? A uh, first day after college. <laughs> oh, wait, oh, really? <laughs> so after I graduated wow. undergrad, I moved back here with my folks temporarily. And just, I don't know if you've, did you ever live with your anyone in your family after college? Well, I lived at home through all undergrad. Okay, okay, okay. I did not. So trying to come back and living with your family is such like a different dynamic of like having that independence for four yeah. plus years. It was just too weird of a transition for me. So I was like, I need my own place. So I had my first job out of college. I was not making much money. So I found like a really cheap, it was a room in a four bedroom apartment. So I had three roommates. Mm. It was not too far from the university, but it was also really close to the hospital. And my first night of like living alone in the real world, not in college, like I'm not going to go hang out with my buddies later tonight. I'm in a different city from where my college was. I heard ambulances. I heard police cars. I heard the chopper come in, like the helicopter for the hospital came in with like a light and stuff. And that was me on my bed like, oh my God, what have I done? Being an adult sucks. This is terrible. Like, what am I doing? All the emergencies happening. I felt that scene so much. Yeah, that was that was a rough scene. Thankfully, for the few more times we see the apartment, maybe only one other time, it's at least fun. That's when he and Billy are having a good time with the silly string and they're eating pizza. You know, they've gotten to hang out as friends again. He's, I think he got his first paycheck, so he's really excited, right. which was, I wrote it down. It's not a lot of money, but he's thrilled. And John Lovett's character is like, I know, right? Like he's saying, like, what a terrible payout. But for a 13-year-old kid, $187. $187? And they're like, yeah, they really screw you, don't they? I do have to mention real quick, this is another one of the great lines that is sort of the adult versus the kid thing when he's doing the interview he's like what school did you go to and he's like george washington he's like oh gw GW. and he's like did you pledge and josh goes every morning every morning (laughs) and he's like just looks at him that's where you get the uh, deus ex machina like so the secretary comes in and like has a question saves him but like oh my god actually no that's elizabeth perkins character oh it is perkins that's right yeah Yeah, susan she comes in to complain about a colleague of theirs yeah so do you want to talk about can we talk about the office space a little bit now that he's getting into this yeah let's get into it let's talk about let's talk about the job so mcmillan toy company yes thank you mcmillan toy company and Billy's job is – what's his job? What's he in charge of? Well, Josh. 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 Sorry. Billy is unemployed because he's a child and does nothing. Well, Josh is a – he starts as a data processor. He's basically typing boring stuff into the computer. Are, are you talking about his second job? Right. The real job. The good job. So we're going to skip a scene to get to this, which lands him this job. Oh, which yeah. Is the, which is at the FAO Schwartz. But yes, he ends up getting – promoted after a brief encounter with Robert Loggia himself, Mr. McMillan, he gets promoted to VP of product development. Which is basically like, as he explains to uh, Billy, it's just like, play with the toys that are in R&D and tell everyone else what he thinks of them. Which today as an adult sounds like the coolest, I want that job right now. That sounds great. I feel like a toy product development VP does not have that much fun at their job. I'm going to go on a limb and say it's probably... Much like the Susan and Paul character who are blabbing about market research and, you know, focus groups and la la la, like all of that snoozy stuff that you might have some insights into, Ben. You're using triggering language right now. And I knew (laughs) you said la la la, snoozy, blah, blah, blah. This movie several times has a lot of hatred for marketing and market research, which as a career marketer. I definitely take umbrage with. 
I fully empathize with all of it because if you want to suck the joy out of anything, what? you either talk about market research or actuarial science. Like those are the two Get things. Well, if we look at the segmentation by age range within a category and the subsegment stratification will show us that there's a 13.4%. Here's my posit. If anybody, any listener loved anything in the 80s, you loved that because there was a lot of market research to make that thing happen. Whatever musician you liked, they had a market research team behind them. Whatever toy you were into, the, the Ninja Turtles toys just didn't come out of nowhere. They you know what else market research got market us? Research. Reality television and boy bands. So That's look, true. it's a double-sided coin. American Gladiators got us reality television, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> didn't, true. Didn't great point. So yeah, I was like, ah, oh, come on. So anyway, he's got this great job. So we're getting to the point of the movie where it's the turn, right? So the fish out of water right. phase is kind of over. He's gotten into his groove. And now we're sort of getting into, hey, adulthood is awesome. Well, and I want to talk about adulthood real fast because the Perkins, we introduced Perkins. So Perkins comes in to talk to the guy interviewing and Tom Hanks is checking her butt out intensely while she's bent over talking at the desk. Yes. And then later they all smash into each other with papers. Oh, it's a four-way collision because they're, you know, power meeting, walk and talk, Aaron Sorkin-esque down the hallway. It's McMillan, it's... Susan and it's Paul. I mean, legs up in the air, like cartoonishly falls backwards. It's like a Kramer fall. Yeah. But Elizabeth Perkins crouches down to help him pick all his papers and her blouse has opened up a little bit and her lacy black bra is visible and Hanks can't even control himself. He's just staring. He's right 13. That's what I'm just saying. Within like two seconds, he's like, check, <laughs> check it out Perkins butt. And then he's like, ooh, bra peak. And like, it's just, I don't know, it reminds you that he's a teenager, just so many hormones. Well, I was reading something that was arguing that the Susan character and the Paul character represent an immaturity to adulthood. That's sort of interestingly juxtaposed Ooh. with Hanks's actual childhood, you know, in adult form. The Paul character, obviously very big on materialism. He's driving a not only a Mercedes, but it's the kind that has like the gold trim on it. And oh, it yeah. just looks... I thought it was tacky back then, and it certainly is still tacky. For some reason, that gold somehow showed wealth or taste, and it just... Ooh, yeah. And, but he's also like a bully, and he's, he's childish. So he's immature. Petty. He's so, a jerk. He's, yeah. Oh, my God, so petty. He's, he's a jerk. That's interesting. And she, at the beginning of the movie, is all business. Yeah. She is all business. Yeah. And, you know, they do kind of mentioned in this article I was reading that she, she she does kind of use her sexuality for power in the sense of like the way she's trying to hobnob with the boss oh, and yeah, talk to yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, There's, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. I think Paul like mentions that, you know, she's had a string of dates or whatever, and she just uses men or something to that effect. He makes yeah. some charge against her. It's all very subtle, but I just thought that was kind of an interesting take where you know, he's the kid in the adult form, but in a lot of ways, they're adults that still have childish qualities. I was like, hmm, interesting. No, that's really good. I agree with that. And I would just go back to another reason I think this movie works as well is because there are lessons both for adults as well as kids, I think. Uh, you yeah. know, the learning goes both ways. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Twould concur. Now, I'm not going to steal your thunder by talking about the main event, but so Josh and Billy go to FAO Shorts. They're playing laser tag. No, he's playing with a random kid. That's That's not Billy. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. So I, as a child, huge laser tag fan. Yep. Like I had a neighbor across the street, David, who had a laser tag set and we would just run around our houses playing laser tag. You would like Velcro. There was a sensor. Yes. Little sounds. Beep, beep, beep. And then when we got to high school, we actually would, 
we <laughs> this is how cool I was. We played laser tag a lot, like at a formal place. And I've played laser tag today as an adult. And they're just not that cool of setups. Like they're sort of afterthoughts. They're like tacked on to an FEC or like even inflatable. Yeah. But like growing up in the city that I did, there were actual laser tag facilities you went to that were awesome. Well, that was a big thing back then. So I love seeing laser tag. And then while Hanks is walking through the store with the CEO, there's a quick flash of a board game on the ground that I saw that I know you've mentioned to me before. Do you know what like big game from the 80s is on the ground? I missed it. Fireball Island. Oh, I thought that was in the scene in his apartment. So he also owns it and it's in his apartment. Okay, but it's on the floor as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, and I want to back up just a tick in that movie because that Lamborghini, it's not really a Power Wheels, but it's like a step up above Power Wheels. There's like a Lamborghini, a toy-sized Lamborghini. And I remember I always wanted one of those because I was always fascinated with big wheels, with remember that Fisher Price red car with the yellow roof? Oh, for sure. Yeah, of course. And you you had like Flintstones kick well, to they, get they around. They put an pedal. engine in it and that's the smart car. <laughs> Basically. Those kinds of things, like anything driving, I think I've mentioned before, I loved driving, was fascinated with driving. So if I could have ever gotten my hands on that Lamborghini, it'd have been sweet. Little Chris would have been in heaven. <laughs> Power wheels are red. So we were getting, I think, to one of the big centerpieces. In fact, I think this was one of the biggest scenes that our class of 80s high said was their favorite, right? Was this one the, the big draw? Right. So we, we asked, what are your favorite scenes from big? And we listed like 10 maybe. Yeah. And 80% of our respondents all said it was playing the giant piano. It was the big scene they remembered. Now, here's a cool behind the scenes thing. So the walking piano is what it's called. At the New York City's F.A.O. Schwartz toy store was only six and a half feet long and only played one octave. So Penny Marshall, director, goes to the manufacturer, the creator of this piano, Remo Saracini. And it's basically like, I need two adult men to play these songs. You need to make me a bigger version. And he said, I'll do it. So he made a 16 foot long, three full octave version for this scene. Ah. That's awesome. Just for this movie. I wonder where it is today. I wonder where that custom... You think Tom Hanks has it like in his garage so when he pulls in, it's like... You know when like movies wrap or like shows wrap, like people will take a souvenir away. Like somehow Hanks got a 16 foot long (laughs) piano like in the back of his Honda and he's like, go, go, go. Go, go before they catch us. So that was great. And another cool thing, Robert Loggia had said when they were going to do that scene, like he and Tom saw these stunt doubles basically wearing their same attire off to the side. And they were like, gosh, we don't want them to use the doubles. And so they made sure that no stunt doubles were used, that they did the entire scene themselves. And they did. No, I thought that's awesome. You watch it. It's not easy. It's a very impressive scene. And then the last thing is they play chopsticks, of course, and that's how they kind of do the show ender, which those are the two songs I feel like anyone who walks up to a piano starts to play. Yeah, you can figure those out. Heart and Soul or Chopsticks. And I have to wonder, did this movie cause people to start doing that or did people always do that? And that's why those songs were chosen. Okay, if you're one of our older listeners and you loved playing Chopsticks and Heart and Soul before 1988, let us know because that's a really good question. I don't know. As we said before, after this, he gets the promotion because Mr. McMillan likes the cut of Josh's jib. Sailing reference! And so it's off to the races. He's product developing, (laughs) which basically means, yeah, he has a bunch of toys. And his poor secretary, Miss Patterson, has to 
fulfill his crazy requests and desires. And this woman does not look pleased. No, he's doing the stuff of like, bring me all the M&Ms, but no brown ones. Like, that's not what he orders, but he's doing well, that Billy sort of thing. Billy comes to visit him and he asks for a Super Bowl game, I think, with all the commercials oh, cut right, out. right, right, right. So yeah. this poor woman has to first go source a recording of this and then snip out all of the commercials. And I'm assuming he wants it immediately, if not well, sooner. Well, and at the time, you know, this is physical work. So she's going to go find a VHS. She's going to pull right. out the tape and literally physically cut the commercials and tape it back together. Yeah, she's not going to have a digitized version where no! she can just go in and do, you know, a few things in Adobe After Effects. So he's immediately, he's immediately drunk with power in his adulthood role. And this woman, as I said, is not having any of it. She is not happy with this job. She's always put out. She is not loving this If she ever boss. found out that Josh was 13 the whole time, the rampage this woman would leave behind. You what? <laughs> well, it does raise a good question. Payroll should have flagged his fake social security number. Yeah. I think McMillan Toys goes under at the end of this movie <laughs> because they get slapped with the IRS <laughs> fine or something or they're shut down for gross misconduct. And I think McMillan's out of business. I love that McMillan's already committing white collar crime, but also uh, employing children. It's employment fraud, man. I'm telling you. There's a lot going on here. Okay. So what else do we have to talk about in the the span of the movie that is adulthood is awesome? Uh, well, there's sort of the company party leading to his apartment. Yeah. Which I've got some questions about. Yeah. So apparently Hanks improvised the scene of eating the baby corn. Right. Eating the baby corn. The way he did. Which was the second most remembered scene by our listeners. It's a great scene. I always love it when stuff like that comes of the moment, like the actor or someone on scene just gets an idea and they're like, hey, do this. And it works so well. And it adds, again, that little bit of charm to a movie. I like that a lot. Yeah, it was so cute. So Elizabeth Perkins is there. She's trying to like talk business with McMillan at the company party and he's not having it. Oh, business. He's like, have a drink. Have several drinks or several. He's like, have several. Several. So it comes across her mind to go talk it up with Josh. Yeah. And the conversation kind of meandering. I've show notes and then text in red means big question for Chris. Oh, geez. Are we at another question for Chris? We have another big question for Chris. All right. She says something like, I always like to, you know, I always like a more intimate setting. Big parties aren't mine. I've got a car outside and she is trying to leave the party with Tom Hanks. My question for you is what is her intention? What are her intentions with leaving the party with Tom Hanks? Well, okay. So if you go back to the premise, I guess you could say that she is attracted to power Once he becomes VP, she starts to notice him. She starts to notice him and she's like, okay, maybe I'll go talk to this guy. Because guess who did not become VP of product development? (laughs) That petty jerk. Krabby McCrabberson. Mr. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. Maybe it should be a bag. Yeah. He did not get the job. And he's, one could say, rightfully upset. I mean, his personality aside and his whole character aside, this data processor comes in who's punching numbers and McMillan on a whim is like, yeah, you're a vice president. Yeah, now? Like, I'd, I'd be mad too. I get it. <laughs> I mean, you have to think poor John Lovitz, like two days later after meeting this guy, Josh is gone and he's like, well, they fire that guy. And they're like, no, you didn't get the memo. He's our vice president of <laughs> development. Now he's like, what? 
I've worked here all this time making $178 a week or whatever it is. Like Josh is so above the John Lovitz character. The John Lovitz doesn't even know what happened to Josh. Like, he's just like, he's like, oh, the last guy only made it 48 hours. Like, yeah. <laughs> you better listen to me if you want to make it around here. Like he has no idea. He's not important enough to get the memo that this right. guy got promoted. Exactly. Yeah, so for bad. sure. But what's the intention? What's the intention? Why is Perkins trying to... She's climbing I think the ladder. She's, she's looking for a little... I don't know that she has a professional interest. I think she's just attracted to him and she's going to like, hey, let's go. I mean, clearly in the later scene when they're at the apartment, she thinks they're going to fool around. Right. Because she's with the other guy, right? They're a, they're a thing, aren't they? There's like a scene of them having breakfast together and stuff. This is a great question. It's never explicitly said, but they do like travel to work together. And yes, right. you see them having breakfast together. So the presumption is that they are live-in dating. Right. So Perkins is seeing this dude crashing and burning at work and he's not the boss's favorite. And he's, she's seeing Josh climbing the ladder and she's like, okay, maybe I'm going to hitch on to this successful Conestoga wagon and ride this ride out. I no, I, I, I think there's something to that. Like it, this is an easy part to overlook. Like this whole angle of the movie is easy to overlook because yeah. it's not very explicitly drawn. But right. if you do look at it, yeah, she does kind of make a decision like this guy's losing power. This guy's gaining power. Hmm. Maybe I'll, you know, see what his deal is all about. And of course, she finds out his deal is. He's got the best apartment on earth. Well, wait, there's an iconic thing on the way to the apartment, right? Well, that is true. Okay, so first off, he eats the, the caviar. She's like, it's beluga. <laughs> and he eats <laughs> it. He <laughs> spits it out, right. So yeah, he's basically like, can I get a milkshake? They go get fast food. But what mode of transport? She said she had a car. What does she actually have? She's got the company limo. Specificity matters here. Yeah. Because her regular car is fine. It's like a Subaru compact. But it has the things. Did you remember? I see this at the end of the movie. When she closes the door, it's the automatic seat belt buckle that goes on a oh, track along was such the edge a of the door. Thing. And like late eighties, early nineties, it was such a thing. Like you could not be trusted to put your own seatbelt on, so the car did it for you. Right. I forgot about those. That's she's got that in her car. I miss seeing that, but I totally remember those things. Right. So they're in this sweet limo. She's kind of drunk moping now. So she's had she took the advice. She's had some drinks. And she's trying to like get to know him a little better, right? right? She's right. trying to like, let's see where our connection is. And what's Tom Hanks doing? So he's just playing with everything in the limo, which is awesome. Which I think the first time any of us ever got to be in a limo ever. Well, what, what are we talking do? about here? Let's uh, be specific. Well, he's pressing every button. He's checking the phone. He's door mo locks. moving door locks, windows up and down. Uh, the lights, there's some like, mood it's not really a map light like you would have in the front seat, but it's similar. Right, He's right. Ch -ch 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 flipping with those. What I love in this scene is he channels my spirit animal for any time you've ever been like in an awkward conversation. Because he's not even listening. She's like lamenting and getting deep about all this stuff. She's, she's trying to forge listening. a connection and he right. is so distracted. And he just screams, eject your seat and like jumps up out of the sunroof, of it, <laughs> which I just thought was just perfect. I love that. Well, and the great thing about it too is he is escaping her like boring conversation, but you don't get a sense that he's doing it intentionally per se. No. He's not like, get me out of this conversation. He's almost following his own whims, right. which again is kind of charming. It's so good. So good. So I'm going um, to use that in real life. That's a pro tip. Adulting pro tip. Jump out of the window. Like I'm just, the next meeting I'm in where I don't want to be in it, I'm just going to be like, eject your seat. And then I'm just going to leave the Zoom call. <laughs> Please, please do So that. good. So they arrive at his apartment. I only have one comment on the apartment, and then I'll let you take it from there. Okay, which is what? My one comment is when they walk in, mm -hmm. there's music playing right away. And I was like, oh, sweet. It's Will Smith's Men in Black. 
I was like, no, wait, that came out way later than this. Yeah. So it's it's Patrice Russian's Forget Me Nuts, which is Will Smith largely sampled for almost all of the music underlying his met here come the men in black clap clap mm-hmm. like all that is what's playing when it comes in so that's just cool i just like hearing that song because it's awesome oh i missed that i didn't think you were going to talk about the music i thought you were going to talk about the fact that his apartment the elevator opens to the apartment yeah so that's pretty sweet that's pretty i feel cool. like that's a new york trope to show that you've made it right that's a sign that you're coming up you know what else is a sign if your apartment has in no specific order, a pinball machine, a Pepsi machine, a trampoline, a basketball hoop, toys and games everywhere, not to mention a bunk bed. And this is a great touch because you would think as a kid, you would want more space and you'd want like a giant king size bed that you can roll around in. On one hand, you would think that, but then on the other hand, you're thinking, no, this is a kid who grew up with a bunk bed and he's still going to have a bunk bed. (laughs) Even when he's an adult and can afford anything he wants because he's VP. Exactly. I love it. And our, uh, so our class agreed too. So it was like uh, we asked the question when you first saw this movie, what an older Josh's apartment job or life did you want most? And everyone only talked about the apartment and everyone mentioned the trampoline and the pinball machine. I mean, so many kids growing up, I know I did, wanted arcade games in your home. Now, I wasn't as big on pinball as others, but I definitely wanted Street Fighter 2 and oh, yeah. NBA Jam. You know, there were so many games. I'm like, oh, my God, I wanted this in my apartment. And it was only in our shared life about two years ago that we do have an arcade that has that is on a timeshare between our homes. That is very true. We have a mini arcade machine that we co-purchased. It took us over three decades to finally make it happen. We made it happen big time. Oh my God, so good. So yeah, that's his like crazy awesome apartment. And of course the bunk bed serves to follow up with another kind of two hitter gag. The first one is, so she comes back to the apartment. Of course, as adults, we all know what it means when you come back to someone's apartment. Yeah, Netflix and chill. A little little risky business. No big deal. A little frisky business, right? Ooh, frisky business. She's like, yeah, do you mind if I come in? And he's like, okay, but I get to be on top. Right, So again, the whole kid, adult wires getting crossed in the conversation. And the look on her face response is like, She's like, all right. All right. And then, of course, she sees the apartment and she's like, what on earth have I come into? And then he coaxes her to get up on the trampoline. And then she ends up having a great time and does a very great move, which is she doesn't just jump. She does a jump, sit down, bounce up, stand back up again. Well, yeah, and Hank's, Hank's character is like, how'd you do that? Uh, you're really good. Like That is some advanced trampolining. Let me just tell but you right there. But this whole scene is great because I think it starts to crack her seriousness of this yes, like corporate world. And she starts to like rediscover herself as an authentic person again. This is like a good wardrobe and like makeup style change is that her uptightness in her wardrobe and her hair and everything gets more lax and more childlike as she progresses from this point on. Yeah, right. Again, it's another one of those nice touches where it's never explicitly shown, but if you look for it, you kind of see that's her not becoming childlike, but just getting back in touch with her inner child and not being such... A Debbie Downer and a serious, always talking business person. If you've been around people that talk business all the time, they're not a lot of fun to be around. No, they're not. And like, it's hard to interject to just like, so, you know, it's like how close you are to those person to finally be like, hey, man, we don't have to talk about this. Like, this, we're But they'll the always bring it back. Like, you can, you can sidetrack them, but then they're like, yeah, I remember actually last week in a meeting and you're like, for crying out loud. We were so close. And then, of course, at the end, 
She's in the bottom bunk and she's wearing this jersey and, you know, he's turning off the lights to come to bed and he runs at the bed and jumps on top. Right. Of, of the, the top bunk bed. Yes. Not on top of her. Right. Great point. And again, she thinks there's going to be a little frisky business. And of course, there's not. But I think that actually she finds that endearing. Like at first you can see she's disappointed. Like, OK, is he not into me? But then I think she starts to realize there's a little bit of charm there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so that I feel like is the end of the fitting in phase because now we start to see trouble in paradise. Yeah. This is where, now granted, on one hand, he and Susan start to grow closer together. They're actually going to work together on a project, but his birthday comes up. It is fun. He celebrates with Billy at a restaurant, but his mom, he misses celebrating with his family. Right. And he has his proper date with Susan. They go to the fair, they have some fun. They dance. There's a great mist where he walks right by the Zoltar machine. Yeah. It's a great sense of like his eyes not on the prize. His eyes is on this new life that he has rather than returning to who he should be. Billy gets noticed that the machine comes in, tries to get Josh to look at it. But Josh is being busy businessman and is like, I don't have time for this. Paul's getting jealous that Susan is hanging out with him. So she breaks up with him, basically. She comes, she storms into Paul's office oh, with yeah. a bag and she's like, take your junk back, jerk. There's a point there where Paul's like trying to size him up and intimidate him. So they go play racquetball and basically they get into a fight. And it's so great because they're basically playing a game of keep away where Josh is like running and trying to evade him like any kid would. Really and he's trying to get scene. the ball back. And then finally he like tackles him and Josh is on the ground, Paul's on top of him and he's doing the thing where you hold something out in your hand and then the person reaches for it. So you switch it into your right. other hand. Yeah, it's so, it's good. so good. That whole scene is really good. And Tom Hanks is quite nimble. I'm just going to say he's a pretty quick little cat. He was a, he was a spry guy. Yeah, it was. Uh, but not spry enough to dodge a punch from Paul who right. punches him in the face and I think his nose bleeds. Right. And somewhere around in there, Susan's like, I'm done with you, jerk store. And she leaves him. So some things are going great, but some things are not. He's starting to get a little homesick. He has these confrontations with Billy, but he's also, he's got a girlfriend now. He's going to be dating somebody and they're hitting it off. And finally, they're going to have this like pitch together. They're coming up with this great idea that they're going to brainstorm. But before that happens, right before that happens, he has a second confrontation with Billy. And this one does not go well. And this is the one we want to talk about. So Detective Billy has still been working his butt off trying to get his best friend back. So he's been working the consumer affairs of the city. The movie only shows us that. But who knows what other shenanigans Billy has gotten into. I feel like Billy has really been pounding the pavement. He's breaking into warehouses. He's like getting into people's basements. (laughs) Yeah. You're trying to save his buddy. So he comes in with a piece of paper. We learn later, scrawled on it, the current location of the Zoltar machine. Yeah. And Tom Hanks is going in for this big business pitch. And he's like, hey, man, I can't do this right now. I've got, I've got, I'm on a call and then I've got a big meeting coming up. And this is where the infamous only four movies rated PG-13 in the 80s got away with an F-bomb. This is where the F-bomb comes in. Big F-bomb. Big F-bomb. So the camera's focused right on Billy's face and Billy screams at Josh in his office, who the F do you think you are? Yeah. Which is awesome. That surprised me. I did not remember that being in there. I was like, oh my goodness. Like it made me stop and say, was this a PG-13 movie? And in retrospect, sort of wise because that is sort of the whole crux of the movie is who do you think you are? Like, who are you? In all of this. Do you remember his follow-up to that? That's exactly the next thing I want to say. (laughs) 
as he's about to, he's leaving, he's storming out of his office, and he turns around. I'm three months older than you, a hole. Oh, he says the so whole good. word. But it reminded me, like, do you remember when we were young? You know, when we were the age of these guys, Billy and Josh. Do you remember how age was such a big deal? Yeah. Like who, oh, yeah. who was senior and who was junior by the matter of a couple weeks or a couple months. Oh, absolutely. If you dated somebody outside of your grade, that was such a big deal. Like when you think about it as an adult, like that never hits you. There was more emphasis on smaller increments of time. Like we've been dating for two weeks. Right. You know, like there was all that right. kind of thing. Like these tiny increments of time held a lot of weight. And if you were 16 minutes older than somebody, that mattered. Oh, yeah. Like I, I look back on my own life in like sixth grade and junior high and I think about how many people I dated but when I go back I'm like well you only dated people for like a month or a couple weeks and at junior high you like held hands and that was counted as dating like that's what was up but developmentally that's a time frame where you there was a lot of sorting by categorization or in order right so do you remember in school where you had to line up based on your height uh, no, I could never really see the front because I was always – I don't really know what we were doing. I just got in the back of the line is kind of what I did. Like, you know, you'd have to line up by height or you'd have to line up by last name or, you know, yeah, stuff like that where yeah, the, you yeah, were categorizing. Yeah. So, like, for some reason that really mattered as a kid and I think developmentally and in school that made a lot of sense. But, yeah, as an adult – no one really cares. Right. So this is really the pivotal scene where he starts to rethink maybe paradise isn't what I thought it was. And this is where he starts to kind of reconnect with childhood. He goes back to his neighborhood. Mm-hmm. He sees the kids playing in the pile of leaves and just having fun, being carefree, not worrying about busy business meetings and product pitches and all that kind of stuff. He's just having this moment of, I miss my family. I want to go home. But first and foremost... He has to do this big pitch. Yeah, so he's got the big pitch. Uh, again, McMillan, the whole room's there. Now uh, him and Perkins are on the same team pitching this project together. And like you mentioned in our Choose Your Own Adventure episode, it's basically a Choose Your Own Adventure for a comic book. So it's an electronic yeah. comic book, plug and play, new stories each time. It's going really well. The jilted ex-boyfriend raises oh his hand and he's like, I don't get it. And, and even McMillan, the president, is like, oh, come on. Like he's, he's like, he knows. jerk move. So that really ruffles Hanks and he's trying to recover. But here's my question for you, because I think I didn't pick up on this ever before. So they're talking about this comic book is it gives you choice. You get to choose. You get to choose what your life and your adventure is going to be. Is talking through this project what triggers him to realize he wants to choose to be a kid again? I think there's a subtlety to it there. I think that's the whole point. Like this concept that he's pitching ultimately drives him to make his actual life choice and choose his own adventure. And of course he chooses, I need to be a kid still. Right, right. Okay. How is he going to become a kid again? Well, Billy gave him the X on the map where the treasure is, right? Right. Back to the place that he first went dancing and got a little smoochy with Susan. He's going to go back to that same place because his little dark machine is there. The one he walked by and missed when yeah. he wasn't paying attention. And he finds it. We missed an important part here, Ben. He has already admitted to her that he's a kid. I forgot about this. Right. Well, he's he's tried to tell her like several times. And she takes it as more of like, 
yeah, like we're all just scared children in, yeah, in this yeah. adult world trying to figure out this mad, mad, mad world. He's like, no, I'm an actual kid. And so they have this kind of argument because what starts it is she has the like, where's this going talk? Like, what yeah. are we doing here? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'm a kid actually. And I, I just want to see my family. And she's like, your family? I knew it. You oh, are right. married. Right. And he's like, no, 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 no. And so it doesn't quite sink in. But I feel like in this moment in the meeting where he storms off, she starts to get it. Like, oh, wait, I think he's telling the truth. Right. She And she catches up to him right after he makes his wish. Well, so he leaves in a taxi and that would have been the end of it. But thankfully, Billy's out on yeah, the street right. getting a hot dog. And then she comes out and basically they realize they both know Josh and Billy tells her where he's going. Yeah. And then, yeah, so he finds Zoltar, unplugs it, because that's how this creepy machine works. We don't hear him make his wish, though. That's off screen, because we go back to Susan. Right. She sees him in the distance. By the time she comes over, he's already made his but wish. But we know, thank goodness, Zoltar knows what you really believe your wish is to be. Zoltar doesn't need specificity. He could have said, I want to be small. And he knows what he knows what it means. That's a good point. We don't know how he asks to no. be reverted. We don't know the question. That's great. We did ask our class of 80s high, you come across Zoltar. You've got a quarter in your pocket. What do you wish for? Yeah, these are great. And so we've got nothing. That dude is sketch. So sketch. Which is true. Very sketch. A million dollars. Yeah. Uh, someone says nothing. I don't believe in making wishes at things like this. Which, I mean, you know, come on. Uh, didn't necessarily work out great for Tom Hanks. So I get it. Yeah, fair enough. I really, somebody like went very sincere in our response that said emotional and financial stability for my family. Looking out for your family. I like That's it. That's great. Preach on. Absolutely. But then we have head of the class, the person who's getting a scratch and stiff sticker. <laughs> I dare say teacher's pet. Pets. Teacher's pet. Somebody said more 80s high podcasts. We're doing the best we can. We're yeah. trying. We're, 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 we're cranking them out we here. <laughs> we have to sleep sometimes. But that person, yeah, A plus. So yeah, off camera, he makes his request. They have a kind of heart to heart. She finds out how young he really is, for realsies. And like, she doesn't say much. So this is one of my other big questions for you is like, what goes through her mind? Because there's a scene early in the movie where they like, allegedly, it leads to little hanky, like serious hanky panky. Though they had some Tom Hanksy Panksy for sure. They did. So like, what goes through her head? Like, what is she thinking? So you have the thing where there's a little bit of touching. Her bra is on, but there's a touching. Can we talk about the touching for a second, though? It's awkward. As it should be for a 13-year-old, but go ahead. Oh, for sure. It is like 10 or 12 seconds from when he begins to touch her, to, yeah. to cup her breast, to when he actually makes contact. Which, so much of this movie, I love just looking from Perkins' point of view. Like, Hanks is the star. It's about, it's Hanks' journey. But yeah. Perkins, to look from her point of view so many times, is like, what is happening right now? And she's got to be just agonizing, like, what are you doing, dude? This is so weird. Well, at the end, when she finds out he actually is 13, she does say, well, that explains it. Yeah, what does she mean there? What does she mean? What happened? That, Probably that so many things, Ben. Oh, my God. That happened both on and off screen. You have to imagine... He wasn't super skilled at a lot of things. But I mean, even kissing at that age, you're not going to be a great kisser. Like making out's not going to be super great. He's probably going to be way, way awkward. But that's a thing. That's definitely a movie making thing that you don't see anymore. It's like 80s storytelling, especially with these sort of like charming stories of becoming an adult and growing up and things like that. There was some class and like it left scenes to the imagination. I feel like if this movie was made today, the scene that would have been big in the movie is them trying to have sex. And like how he would keep screwing it up because he was a 13 year old and didn't know what was going on. Like they would show that scene today in its entirety. Or at least part of it. Yeah. yeah they would make it for it. 
probably more of like slapstick antics. Exactly. Frankly, I'm glad is not in there because it's not necessary in a. It's a different tone of a movie. Right. The implication is American Pie sequel. That's not a a big movie. Precisely. So I like how they left it. Super bad. Sure. This movie. Get out of there. When they're on the boardwalk by the Zoltar, yeah, and he's, he's like, she's, you see she finally accepts it. You're like, wow, you were mentally going through a lot that you're not saying out loud. Like, the life you've lived with this 13-year-old. Well, she does make a joke like, well, maybe in 10 years, keep my number. You can look me up. She says that. That was kind of my closing question here. And I have one thing I want to come back to. My closing question was like, okay, so big two, the sequel. When Josh turns 18, does he go looking for her? And does he try and get his job back? Okay, I'm going to no. First off, no. We're going to talk about what actually happens after this movie ends. I have some theories about what happens to all these different people. Okay. I've already given you my theory on what happens to Macmillan Toys. It goes under for employment fraud. Is, is this like the ending of Clue or like Stripes where it goes like shot by shot of each character and there's like the write-up of like what happened to them after the movie? It's the end over? of The Sandlot where it's like, yeah, this right. character is now doing this. Right. Yeah. Okay, good. So... Macmillan put a lot of trust into this guy, and he walks out of a pitch meeting never to return. Oh, he's blacklisted. As far as Macmillan is concerned, this guy just walked out on the job and betrayed him. Yeah. After he put all this confidence into him, he's not getting that job back. Yeah, blacklisted. Okay. Number one. Number two, dating her. I'm going to say no, and here's why. I think this is more of like a summer romance. This is the, I went on vacation over summer and met somebody and we hit it off, but we're just... It was a thing that was special at that time, but is no longer a thing. I don't think he's going to, I hope, he doesn't continue to pine for her. As much of a connection they had, they didn't know each other that long. All right. I was just curious. But teenage infatuation being what it is, or young love infatuation, I don't know. Maybe he does try to like at least see where she is. Right? And again, from Perkins, I'm curious what she thinks. Like, okay, here he is. I feel like she would have moved on. And that's not a judgment on her character, you know, how she jumped from relationships. I feel like she did learn something from this one. Yeah, she learned something about She's going to move on. She's not going to just be like in waiting for a 13-year-old. It's weird. That's years. It's that weird. would be odd. It's weird. I mean, as soon as she finds out he's that age, she does not kiss him on the lips again. He no. goes to kiss her at the car and she moves very wisely his head down and kisses him on the forehead. Right, which which I we audibly said out loud, good move. Like that's the right move, Perkins. I Don't wrote do it. Pro- I think I wrote the exact same words because I we, so Ben and I we both kind of do a live reaction thing where we'll type stuff in the moment so we can refer back to it. And I wrote kiss on the forehead. She's no dummy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good move. Now, b- before they're in the car, though, on the boardwalk, after they're having this talk, I actually wrote down, there's a really good line here that's really well written. Oh, I think I know what it is. It's Go ahead. It's really well delivered. And I, I think it's one of the best lines of the whole movie. And it just struck me. So I thought it was great. I'm going to give you a setup for this one because yeah. I know exactly what you're going to say. So the whole idea is, you know, she's like, hey, wait, you're leaving. You're going back. I thought we had something together. I thought there was something special here. What's going to happen? And then Hank says, there's a million reasons for me to go home, but only one reason for me to stay. Oh, that's good writing. What a great line. And it's true. Oh, yeah. It's not that I don't have this great thing with you, but I have so many more reasons. I have to go back to being a kid yeah. and see my traumatized mother, who's probably oh in, the fetal, in the fetal position in the basement in right now. therapy by now. And so they say their goodbyes. He walks back to his house. She looks down for five seconds. She looks back up. He's a kid. Which someone said, uh, again, from our class of 80s high, we asked them what they thought the scariest scenes were in Big. Yeah. And someone said, 
Josh walking down the street in big person clothing. Well, here's the first thing. You hear the clomping of the shoes. Yeah. And then you see a child in this just oversized adult outfit because he's wearing a really long trench coat as an adult. And as a kid, obviously, it's dragon behind him. It just looks really terrifying. And he goes and runs inside. Now, Mrs. Baskin, her son finally comes back. She's ecstatic. Yeah. But what's going through her head? She now sees her son run in wearing adult clothes. And we can presume adult underwear. The last time she saw her son, he was like, look, I'm wearing your son's underwear. And we totally glazed over the part where adult Tom Hanks calls the house. Oh my God, yes. Posing as a kidnapper just to reassure her that Josh is okay. Yeah. I mean, she knows in her reality, Josh has been kidnapped. And that was after he wrote her, I won't call it a ransom note, but sort of a ransom note where he's like, I'm doing okay. They're treating me fine here. Right. So she's getting these little breadcrumbs of hope. But ultimately it's like, yeah, you're not going to see me for a while. And she just has to sit there, apparently by herself, and suffer in silence. Again, this movie, if you just focus on Josh and Tom Hanks, it's a fun movie. When you start to try and look at the perspective from other characters in this movie, it's insane. You have to stay in this perspective for this movie to be enjoyable. Otherwise, (laughs) it's just a nightmare. It's terrifying. We've talked so much about this movie. We probably need to get to the next class. This has been... Fun, but a long, long... This is a double period of chemistry. No, yeah. No, I'm looking at my beaker, and it's just like granulated salt at the bottom. It's all boiled off. There's no liquid left. <laughs> I, it's everything. Experiment the Bunsen burner starting to smell of... Exactly. <laughs> burned chemicals. Okay, well, of course, we can't just skip lunch. That would be nonsense, especially after that delish, delish menu we heard. So let's say we run to the lunchroom, grab a milk... Maybe Josh is on the milk carton. Maybe I'll pick up a couple baby corns. Pick up some beluga, pick up some baby corns. We'll catch you after lunch. First dance. And who dance with me? Except Jeffrey Kaiser, the biggest nerd. Cheer up. You're drinking milk and this is you in a few years. Not with this brace face and gross hair. Well, you're growing fast and milk can help you get a great smile and gorgeous hair. But my body, the only difference between me and the guys is this dress. Hey, you can see we turned out just fine. Who is that? That's Jeffrey Kaiser. Milk, it does a body good. Ugh, so good. That beluga was fine, but could I just get a milkshake or something? <laughs> Imagine elementary school, like a high school serving beluga in the cafeteria. Oh my God. Oh man. So look, we could go on and on about all of these other body switch, body swap, age switch movies. Yeah. There's tons of them. Some of them are contemporaries with the movie. Some come after. Some have been done multiple times. I think there's like three Freaky Fridays. Oh, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think 30 going on 14 is, or it's the opposite. Um, 14, is it 14 going on 30? I think they did a remake with Jennifer... Garner. Aniston. Lopez. Thank you. Garner, no, you were right the first okay. time. Good pick. I know. I was like, wait, there's too many Jennifers. There's in my so many screen. Jennifers. Jennifer Garner, which again, she can play youthful yeah, joy very sure, well. For sure. She's great. So... Tons of those. We talked about vice versa with our buddy, longtime friend of the show, <laughs> Judge Reinhold. Sir Reinhold. Did we, did we, Sir, did we knight him? We're going to knight him as well. Sir, Sir, Reinhold. Sir Reinhold. I mean, if you get mentioned across three episodes of this podcast, you're a knight. <laughs> That's great. No, so uh, 
there's tons of those. We don't need to get into a lot of those. I do want to talk about a couple of things. Apparently, this was adopted into a comic book. Cool. In 1988. Was it electronic or was it paper? Oh, I should only hope so. Uh, we should only hope so. Okay, good. In 2004, there was an Indian version of the film titled Nani and had a very similar plot, almost identical plot, as a matter of fact, just a few changes. Yeah. They turned it into a Broadway musical in 1996. That's interesting. I wonder how that held up. Had like 193 performances. Oh my God. Okay, it's legit. for a bit. Television show has attempted an adaptation to a 1990 sitcom. Oh no. Spoilers, it did not get picked up. Yeah, uh, it's too long, too long. I think this is definitely a movie you can't linger on too much because some of the weirder, creepier, potentially devastating parts just get exacerbated. Yeah, you can't stretch that, no, 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 too long. Will the terrorists ever return Josh to his mother? Right, yeah, that that eh, that's going to wear thin. In 2019, there was a movie called Little. Okay. I had not heard of this movie before. Yeah, I don't know it. A remake of Big... Starring Regina Hall, Issa Rae, and Marseille Martin. I'm like, Regina Hall and Issa Rae are two pretty big names out there. So obviously this is different because it's a female cast. So the Josh character is female, but she goes in the reverse. She's an overbearing boss who's turned into a child. But again, the learning lesson is always the same. Tap into that childhood innocence. Grass is not always green on the other side. Life lessons learned. Mm -hmm. And apparently on an episode of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert in 2015... Hanks was on, and they did a parody of this movie, and basically it's Hanks finding the Zoltar machine, which was played by Stephen Colbert. Right, right. Asking to go back to the age of 30. Now he's too yeah. old, but he wants to be 30. <laughs> it's actually a pretty funny bit. It's pretty good. I didn't get a chance to watch it, but I can only imagine with those two, it was a treat. I mean, as far as pop culture, the only other thing that you haven't mentioned yet that I just thought was kind of close uh, was 1996, the movie Jack, where Robin yeah. Williams plays a boy who... His body physically keeps growing, but he's still a little boy. So, you know, it's adult Robin Williams playing a kid. Yeah. So it's got a lot of that um, Stand By Me vibe to it. It's got some big vibe to it. And I just thought it was interesting to bring up because Robin Williams was briefly considered for the role of Josh in Big. It is funny that two of the, at least two of the people considered ended up doing age transformation oh, movies. Because yeah. Judge did one, Robin did one. Oh, yeah. They were like, hey, if you're not going to give us the part, we'll go do our own body swap movie. And not a body swap, but definitely a role swap is, was it King Ralph that John Goodman was in where he finds out through some distant lineage he's actually English royalty? What? No. I think it's called King Ralph or something like that. Or Trading Places you have with uh, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd? That's right. Yeah, I mean, there's so many of these swap movies. And yeah, yeah. And again, with varying degrees of success, but often there's a life lesson that the person learns because they're either wanting something that is not super attainable or ideal. They learn that this other thing is not as great as it seems, or they're kind of rigid and overbearing and problematic and they have to learn, you know, either to be a little bit of a child again, not take things too seriously, whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like Scrooge, right? Scrooge gets visited by the ghosts right. and he learns humanity. Now, there's the pop culture influences we said, but there's just a cultural there's cultural influence of this movie. I mean, number one, no one in their right minds sees a large piano that you play with your feet and doesn't think of this movie. 100%. If you are any at any kind of fair or carnival and you see like someone who will read your fortune inside a box, you think of the Zoltar machine. Ben, have you seen... A Zoltar machine in real life? It's like a real thing? You can you can play one? Okay, so we do have to come back to Zoltar now. No, it's out so there? This Why would anybody the let this out in the wild? It's ruining lives. So, 
Zoltar Speaks is a fictional fortune-telling machine based off of a real-life 1960s machine called Zoltan. Uh, so very similar. In 2007, a company trademarked Zoltar Speaks and began selling these. Ben, there used to be and may still be one at Pike Place Market. Oh, in really? Yes, sir. I'm going to go try and find it. Um, yeah. I'm on the website right now of Zoltar Speaks. What do you think the standard Zoltar retails for in 2021? Oh, oh, geez. Okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to go a little crazy. Is it $5,000? Higher. $10,000. Okay, not that high. Okay. $7,900 for the standard Zoltar. Whoa. And the deluxe just looks way fancier. It's gold. But my guess is you're going to purchase it as an investment because people will then throw money into it. And basically, you're paying for a printer. Right, right. And then, <laughs> then, they, then they get older suddenly, they have real jobs, and they can put more money into the machine because they have income. Because they, they have to come back and unwish the wish. Exactly. exactly. It's perfect. It's great. You get them twice. You get them twice. It's so sneaky. And the last thing I wanted to mention about contemporary culture is the DVD version, they did release an extended cut of this <gasps> movie. Ben, they added nearly 30 minutes what? back. That's a lot. And apparently most of what's added back is a little more character development. So they said there's an example of a younger Josh where we get a more understanding of why he wants to be an adult. Okay. And there's also scenes about the adult Josh wishing to become a kid again. When Josh tells Susan that he's 13 and he's a kid and they made this wish on the machine. She goes through his wallet when he's sleeping. So this is, I think, when they're at the apartment, and she sees his Zoltar Speaks card. So she gets a little more evidence that he is indeed telling the truth. Interesting. I'm kind of curious to see it. I don't feel like this movie's missing anything where I would need more in it. No. But sometimes after you've seen the thing, it's kind of fun to see what was taken out. But almost always when I see things added back in, I'm like, mm, it didn't need to be there. It didn't need to be there. I mean, let's just look at the first new edition of Star Wars. When we, we CG edited a bunch of things in, didn't need it. Not necessary. Putting Jabba back in wasn't necessary. Not necessary. Nope. But anyway, I think that's all I had for contemporary culture. That's all I got. All right. Well, let's run this thing through the final analysis. Let's find out whether this thing stands the test of time <laughs> and go to math class. Let's do it. So we've talked a lot about this movie. Yeah. I feel like we say this every episode, but longer than I expected to. Yeah. What is your analysis of this? Does this movie hold up? What do you think? So I give this movie, I give it a A minus for holding right. up. A, a or an A minus. I think it's a great story. It's well acted. It's really fun. Some great messages in it. Some great lines. And it is shot in a way, a quality, like we've talked before, sound and lighting production are quality enough that it doesn't age really badly. Yeah. So it's a great watch. I think it's great. Uh, there are two little scenes that are just like, ah, oh, this was a different time that don't hold up super well. And not like it's a really bad thing, but it's just like, ah, oh, things are different these days. Sure. One is is when he runs to school and he's going to talk to um, Billy in the gym supply closet to try and convince him. Uh, they're playing basketball and they're playing shirts and skins. Ugh, I hated that as a kid. Right. And like that was oh my super common as a kid of like, all right, you guys take your shirts off. We're going to play shirts and skin. That's how you know which team is which team. Yeah. And like I haven't been inside a school, like a high school and elementary school in probably over a decade. But like I can't imagine in contemporary culture that you tell half your class to go topless 
I sure hope not. I hated that. It was so awkward. I was, I always very self-conscious as a kid. Like that is, that was one of those things where I'm like, why are we doing this? Exactly. So yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine that's still going on. And then the other one, and I had to do a lot of reflecting on why this keeps bothering me in the movies we're doing. So I'm just throwing this out here. Yeah. (laughs) Hanks and Perkins are, are, uh, they're at a nice adult dinner party. The host's teenage son comes in. And he's like, hey, dad, can you help me with my algebra? And of course, to make the, the, the enemy that the dad is, he's like, hey, come on, can't you see we've got dinner here? We don't have time for this. Hank says like, oh, like I'm pretty good at algebra or something like that. And the kid mentions some other class and Hank's like, oh, yeah, I used to study that too. Oh, because they were talking about Christopher Columbus and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, I used to study algebra. And so next cuts to the scene. Hank is in this kid's bedroom alone, the two of them, and he's helping him with his math homework. And yes... Yes, the kid's mom and I think Perkins check on him and then they like shut the door. They're like, oh, that's nice. And they shut the door on him. So again, much older man in a bedroom alone with a much younger boy. But here, okay, but I thought about this. I thought about why these scenes bother me so much. Did you ever work at or go to summer camp? No. Okay. So I worked five seasons at summer camps and was like a summer camp kid growing up. And when you work at a summer camp, there is so much training and lot logistics you have to go around to never be alone with a child in every circumstance possible. Kid gets sick, you make sure the kid has a buddy and they go to the nurse's station. You're doing showers at night. You've got like a buddy system with kids. And you've usually the camps I worked at, you had a co-counselor. So those two adults with the kids. Because like you never as for liability, you just never want a scenario to come up when you're taking care of children. That could raise any question that an opportunity came up where something foul could have happened. And so that is drilled into my skull of like, never be alone with anyone's kids. Like that's always in my head. Clearly, because your mind immediately jumps to the most disgusting level that you think something foul is going on. In fact, you use the terms lure. Oh, they lure them up. The kid wanted help with his homework. He's in his room doing his homework. They're not going to disturb the adults. But you just have this like... (laughs) preset <laughs> that these people are these nefarious things oh my goodness and back then you know the writing of it because it keeps coming up in these movies is very innocent and it's just like adults hanging out mentoring kids you had the same gripes the exact same gripes with gremlins <laughs> I, at least i did some reflection to understand why this is a trigger for me because this was like trained into my skull for years that all aside i love big it's a great movie definitely holds up yeah fun lighthearted movie Like you said, great script. I think, you know, there's certain movies that age well, and I think it's largely because of the director's capable hands. Penny Marshall is a capable, great director. I can't think of a single movie she's done where you're like, eh, that hasn't aged well. You know, it's like a John Hughes movie or whatever. Like, they're going to stand the test of time, even though they certainly have these dated elements in it. By and large, it's still a watchable movie, unlike others. Whenever there's a lighthearted movie that has a terrifying lining underneath it that I can sort of pull apart and dissect. You know I love that. Yes. So that's great, of course. Last, I would say, while I do like this movie, I didn't have as many of the good feels as I thought I was going mm-hmm. to have and that I do have with other 80s properties and movies. Yeah. And so I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a great time, but I didn't have that twinge of nostalgia like I do with some other movies that I'm sure we're going to end up talking about. I did want to end with one last thing. This episode's gone long, but you know what? I have to ask the question, what happens next for Susan? I think she goes home and takes a Silkwood shower. I think she... (laughs) 
This is like, what is it, crying game where she gets in the shower and just scrubs herself with like steel wool. Oh, God, I was, I was like, going to say Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Crying and oh, crying yeah, that in one the too. shower that one too. on the floor. Which I think is a play off of crying yeah, game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So she goes home and totally disinfects herself. Yeah. And maybe goes to therapy. Billy is forever terrified that his best friend is going to have a hard life and will try to magic his way into a better life again. And he's basically going to have a friend who is dependent on maybe not drugs, but is dependent on (laughs) life-changing magic. And so now Billy's forever haunted that his friend's just going to go down some dark path where he's like into some occult mysticism. Oh my God. We've already talked about the dad vanishing into thin air. I thought Billy was just going to start like a a retro arcade. Like he's learned to be really good at hunting down (laughs) old classic cave cabinets. So he just starts a really great traveling uh, amusement park. Or he begins his life as a junior detective and works his way up into <laughs> the Billy you know, Files. I'd watch it. Yeah, I would too. He's he's tenacious. He's a he's a spunky little kid. I like it. And his catchphrase is always, "Who the f- do you think you are?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm three weeks older than you, a hole. So it'd be great. Okay, so the dad either vanishes or he left the family or he was so busy he didn't care about Josh. Like, that's going to be a risk. That's the sequel is Detective Billy tries to track down Josh's father. (laughs) Mr. McMillan, assuming his business is still a business because they don't find out employment fraud's been going on, (laughs) he's now forever betrayed as to why one of his VPs vanished that he put so much trust in and he has no explanation as to why this guy is going on. Yeah. Miss Patterson flourishes she's in seventh heaven she does not have to deal with josh's bizarre requests oh, his secretary. anymore yes the secretary she she's the only one who thrives because she no longer has to deal with these oddball she's crazy requests of the bs good and oh so josh his mom's gonna have eight million questions the police are gonna have eight million questions who's your kidnapper what did they do to you how long were you there did they torture you did they beat you did they neglect you did they they're gonna have so many questions he now either has to tell the truth which no one's gonna believe or concoct a ridiculous lie to assuage his grief-stricken mother well as to what happened his mother's gonna put him in therapy to like get over he's gonna go to therapy he's gonna make this up to the therapist it's gonna haunt him because like this is a small little town outside of downtown new york like He'll be famous for this, like the kid who was returned. Do you hear about that Jersey kid who was like stolen and, and now he he's come back? He can never shake it. He'll never be able to shake this. Yeah, that's interesting. This haunts him. So he has a he has the lie. Billy has to keep the lie. Billy already had to keep the lie to his mom. Remember when she's like, he had a birthday? They're talking on the oh my god across the window. He doesn't lie, but it's the lie of omission. He doesn't say, oh yeah, I saw Josh. He's cool. He's an adult now. I think we know now why there was never a sequel. Because this For story sure. unwinds immediately after the credits. The sequel is a horror movie or a dark drama or something. And then, of course, Susan has to manage the lie. Back at work, where did Josh go? Weren't you dating him? You guys pitched oh together. What did he tell you? So this poor woman is also haunted. So all these people are basically in therapy, except Miss Patterson. She's living the dream. Yeah. Josh, She's so happy. He's just pulled like the two closest people in his life into this lifelong lie for yeah. him to keep going. Wow. That's important to consider. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, if you want to really enjoy Big, don't think about anything after the Don't credits. listen to us. <laughs> yeah, don't listen to us. <laughs> don't think about the movie from any perspective except Josh's. Oh, man. Okay. That was so long, but a lot of fun. Good trip down memory lane. Yeah, we did We've a bit. got to close this baby out, though, with your surprise reveal that we're watching Stand By Me. 
next week. <laughs> I cannot wait to stand by me. So this is going to be big. This is going to be a well. This was big. You thought it the, won't be you big. You thought that was big. This is going to be. It'll big, be lowercase big. Lower, yeah, lowercase big. So I was trying to think what I wanted to do. We we have a spreadsheet that we don't look at all the time of literally like two hundred things in our topic. Bank so many topics that we want to get to. I was reminded that you and I promised ourselves that we wouldn't always do stuff that we loved and were crazy passionate about about the eighties. Okay. Sometimes we would be courageous mm. and pick something we know nothing about. Okay, this is good. All right, all right. And what you're going to love even more is this is a listener request. Oh. So somebody asked me like, hey, are you ever going to do blanket a blank? And I was like, I don't know anything about that, but maybe we should. So with all those elements combined, what don't I know anything about? What's a category we haven't done in a while? So next time on 80s High... We are going to explore one of the matriarchs of the 80s, someone who may have contributed more to the sound of the 1980s than many other people we may ever talk about on this podcast. Cindy Lauper. Ooh, really close. Oh, okay. Singer, songwriter, poet, life liver, Pat Benatar. (gasps) (laughs) We belong, baby. We belong. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so this is like, I recognize some of the so- songs that I Googled, but I it, the rest of it, nothing. Black hole. So I'm oh gonna, we're going to learn a lot this week. I'm going to do a lot of real research, learn a lot. Let's get into like what her influences was on the 80s, what was big That's about great. her. What was going on? She is wonderful and fantastic. I'm super excited. I can already envision two of the music videos I'm going to have to rewatch <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Ms. Benatar herself. Get your scrunchies ready. Get your neon stretchy pants. Get your hair done real big. Because on the next episode of 80s High, we are going to rock out with one Miss Pat Benatar. Oh, this topic is a battlefield. Yes. (laughs) So excited. Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical. Stay radical.